It's really a great pleasure to be here and lovely to see everybody's faces or photos <laughs> showing up. Um, I really want to welcome you all. And we're going to be diving into a, a very profound teaching of the Buddha um, that, of course, like most of his teachings, has a connection in different ways to the rest of the the, the body of the, the Dhamma. I think in particular, looking at these uh, delusions or distortions uh, that we commonly carry in our perceptions really helps us to develop insight, wisdom. And so we're gonna uh, dive right in. I'm gonna share my notes with you so that you can uh, follow along. And I'm also going to be asking you some questions. It might be good to have something next to you to write on uh, if, you, if you can, or on your phone or whatever is convenient. Uh, just to, um, it won't be a lot, but just, just to kind of give you a chance to think about this a little bit. Uh, before we dive into some of the poetry of the enlightened monks and nuns from the time of the Buddha. Okay, so I'm going to share the screen. So I think what you'll be seeing there is Dispelling Delusion Part 1. So we've got four parts to this series, as you know. There are four delusions <laughs> that we're going to deal with. And so this sutta right here, the beginning of it in this intro, little tiny introduction uh, to the whole topic, the Vipalasa, that's the Pali word, the Vipalasa Sutta. And what it means is distortions, or sometimes um, it gets translated inversions or even perversions. I'm not too keen on those two. It seems like distortion is a little bit easier or more clear in my in my mind. And, and so we're, we're going to uh, use yeah, kind of use <laughs> Bhikkhu Sajato's translation here. But I put it in the notes because I did change I think he uses inversions. Or per, I think he uses perversions, and Bhikkhu Bodhi uses inversions. And uh, if you look at what the meaning of vipalasa is, it also can be distortions. So I think you get the idea. First of all, <laughs> uh, any Pali word may not necessarily translate perfectly into an English word, just like any other language. If you happen to have more than one language, at your disposal, then you probably know things in one language that you can't really neatly, completely replicate in the other language that you know. And that's what we have often with Pali and English. So if we think of these as distortions, it's a distortion in our perception. And the Buddha says here, these are four distortions of perception, mind, and view. So it's kind of interesting. Like it's a distortion of perception. It's a distortion we hold in the mind. The, the actual 
in in the mind itself and our view is wrong it's it, we don't have right view when we are looking at the first one they are taking impermanence as permanence so tonight we're going to delve into this one more deeply you know where do we assume that something's permanent when actually it's not permanent and the second distortion which we'll look at deeply next week is to take suffering as happiness so we are pursuing something that we think is going to bring us happiness and what it actually brings us is quite a lot of suffering maybe a little bit of happiness but then there's a lot of suffering there too and the third one is when we take not self as self we assume something is me or mine and it's not at all and therefore we can't um you might say gain what we want to gain from it as if it were mine or if it were self and so those three are pretty commonly often referred to um impermanent suffering and not self is the three characteristics and that's not a uh a phrase you find in the pali in the early pali suttas but you do see those three being referred to frequently together and we are encouraged by master teachers again and again to really use those three as reflections in order to go deeper into our understanding of reality impermanent suffering and not self but then the buddha adds this last one here taking ugliness as beauty because this is also something that we frequently do we 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 really see something as beautiful we're very attracted to it we're really interested in it and we don't see the unbeautiful side so the buddha says that there are those four distortions and then there are four corrections which are probably pretty obvious <laughs> the four corrections of perception mind and view taking impermanence is impermanence like if something's impermanent we know it's impermanent we really have that awareness deep in our mind in our view in the way we see things and the decisions we make in our perception of what we see here taste touch smell feel think we take suffering as suffering we take what's not self as not self and we take ugliness as ugliness or what's not beautiful again the translation can be a little you know tricky it can give you different different uh feeling different perception it's like the unbeautiful when we look at the unbeautiful in our own body say so anyway we'll be getting into those pretty deeply throughout this series these are the four corrections of perception mind and view and then the buddha went on to say perceiving impermanence as impermanence and by the way these even they they look like paragraphs these are actually verses so we want to really kind of put, bring some attention to the verses used 
in the suttas, and this is all in verse. Perceiving impermanence as permanence, suffering as happiness, not self as self, and ugliness as beauty. Sentient beings are ruined by wrong view, deranged out of their minds. Seems a bit strong, don't you think? <laughs> but if you start to really think about it, that's what we can experience, being out of our minds, ruined by wrong view, go through our whole life, not understanding the way things are and, and not knowing how to live. Yoked by Mara's yoke, these people find no sanctuary from the yoke. We're, we're, we're tied up. I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like to be in the harness, like a yoked oxen together, and not have the freedom or liberty or ability to be free of that. That's what he's saying. We are caught up in samsara and tied to it. Sentient beings continue to transmigrate with ongoing birth and death. This is something I'm going to want to hear from you about because there are lots of folks, especially in our culture in the West. I don't know where some of you are. You maybe have very different conditioning from kind of where I came from in the Midwest, uh, where people did not talk about rebirth. They didn't think in those terms. Um, and so that, that can be a sort of a mm, interesting area of contemplation if we're not um, used to it or haven't really um, seen for ourselves that that's true, that that reality is there of rebirth. But when the Buddhas arise in the world, those beacons reveal this teaching that leads to the stilling of suffering when a wise person hears them, they get their mind back, seeing impermanence as impermanence, suffering as suffering, not self as not self, and ugliness as ugliness. Taking up right view, they've risen above all suffering. So I think what I'd like to do is Stop sharing right there and see if you have any comments or questions at this point, because there, that's, that's kind of the, hmm, the encapsulation of this discussion and investigation. And there might be something in there for some of you that's a little surprising or confusing or off-putting or delightful, <laughs> I don't know. Any questions, any comments at this point? Ah, Carrie, please go ahead. Hi, um, <clears throat> I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about ugliness, just mm. because like in lay circles, it's not a word I hear teachers use ever. Uh, and yeah, I'm just curious where beauty and ugliness sort of how, how they would, what those words would have meant. 
But then. Yes. So I think I, I'm not going to really um, think right now about what our examples are going to be in that fourth week, but the main striking example probably is the human body and how it's glorified um, and sought after um, on so many, in so many ways, whether it's wanting to be attractive or perceived as being attractive by others and, you know, what um, people might, efforts they might put into that to be beautiful. And yet we're covering up a body that has all kinds of, um, you know, like, smell and you know unpleasant um like calling it ugly is maybe a little uh not covering all the possibilities but not very beautiful aspects to the body and we can easily get um, deluded and obsessed not just by trying to beautify our own bodies but in being attracted to other people their bodies. And when we're attracted, you know, on that kind of superficial level of how people look, um, that can lead us to doing things we shouldn't do or, um, you know, losing our mind, like he said. So that's one really, that's one really clear example. And does that make sense? It can be other things too, you know, you might you might feel like, wow, that's a really beautiful house. I want a house like that. You know, that one with six bedrooms and seven bathrooms and you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. And then we don't think about the taxes and the cleaning and all of the other things that make it difficult and um, going into debt or whatever, you know. I mean, the Buddha really wants us to think about things realistically. And um, I think those kinds of examples would fall into this beauty and, and not beautiful category. Does that make sense, Carrie? Yes, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Olivia? Hello, I'm sorry I'm not going to turn the video on, but I just think to be able to think about things realistically, shouldn't we be able to see both ends of the, uh, both sides of the picture? Yes, absolutely. And the Buddha talks about that, seeing the beauty in ugliness, seeing what's ugly and the beautiful, going, being able to look from all perspectives realistically. So it isn't like we just look at the ugly or we just look at the, well, when it's, when it's, when you're trying to see beauty and ugliness is a little different, isn't it, from the permanent and impermanent suffering? Exactly. I happiness. Self and not self, because if we're thinking something belongs to me that really doesn't belong to me, that's just pure delusion. Whereas with beauty and ugliness, I think it's true. You can you can see the beauty in aging. You can see the beauty 
one time um, I was walking with another el- an elder Brikuni, and we were walking past some rose bushes, and I asked her a question like, which of these roses do you think is the most beautiful? And they were all different stages of of beautifully blooming and dying and deteriorating and you know and she she made a comment about the dying and deteriorating ones is the one she thought were most beautiful and you know it's like this is you know of course this is something we can observe in ourselves and observe in the world but the the reason the purpose of looking at things clearly and seeing the way they are is that we don't get caught up and desire for them um, to bring us happiness when they can't. We don't lose our minds, that we have our minds, we have right view, we have a clarity of view. And I think as we go forward, we're going to see, hopefully we'll be able to discuss and really connect with circumstances where we see how this affects us and how we are more equanimous and resilient and accepting and loving and appreciative, grateful and generous when we see the way things actually are. Yeah, I'll I'll stay tuned. I just feel that it's a question of trying to figure out what the desire is and where we... uh, cling or crave too much. I don't know if it's the object itself. Mm. Well, the Buddha is talking about the perception, the mind, and the view. So it's not about the object. That is true. It's about our perception of it. It's about, and that's where the craving comes from, right? Right. Yeah. Good point. Okay, so we're going to start looking at impermanence. And we're going to look at a few poems. But before we start, this is where I'd like to um, ask you a question for your contemplation and just jot down the answer. If I find that if, if I ask people to write something down, then they come to more clarity. It doesn't just, it's not just a vague um, idea of things. So I would like you to think about this a little bit. So we're probably all pretty aware that there are some things that we know are impermanent, but we don't act like it. Like we all know we're going to die, but we don't spend our days um, making decisions in such a way that that might happen anytime. A lot of the time we waste time or, you know, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with doing things for the long term because we might live a long time. We do have to prepare for that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, something like just I want you to think that even though you know something is impermanent, I'd like you to write down three things that if they happen to end tonight, that they would be, that that would be difficult, um, 
maybe even devastating. Sister, what was the word we were using earlier? Ah, that it would feel like a blow, a blow to your security or safety. Just three things. Can be anything. And I want to tell you a story about someone who had this experience. He's actually a fairly famous person, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. But his parents were both in their 80s. And and one night they were using their fireplace. And they both died from carbon monoxide poisoning. And this man, the son, he really took it hard. And he later said, you know, I knew I would probably have to live through the death of my parents. But I wasn't prepared for or I, you know, to have them both go in that way at the same time was extremely hard. And we can all appreciate that, (laughs) have compassion for that. But I think the Buddha is often in his teachings trying to encourage us to reflect in a way that we're ready for whatever might happen. Not in a morbid way, not in an anxious way, but in a calm and collected and realistic way. So, you know, none of this is to say, I I, want to be careful for us not to be hard on ourselves in any way, because these are natural reactions that, you know, this is an investigation. This isn't like we're going to have a perfection around this, um, or that we have to ever feel bad about how we feel when something happens, that it's understandable and... Um, and an opportunity to think about, well, what, what might I do to hold things in a way that I'm closer to that peace, regardless of what happens. So having said that, um, I'm going to ask for a courageous volunteer to tell me what their three things are. Anybody up for it? I I thought about it as you were speaking. And I just think if I did not have a chance to have some small idea of what this right view is, that would then lead to, uh, that would be quite a big blow. Because if you have a small notion, then there is an impetus to keep learning mm-hmm. or thinking and evaluating. And that would be my second choice, second and third. Okay, so I can't see who's speaking right now. Tell me your name. <laughs> it was Olivia. I can turn my video oh. on, but it's... Oh, you don't have to, but it's just the the way the 
um, the view is I can't, it, you're not popping up to the front. So I just wanted to know. So Olivia, will you say that again? You're talking about, are, did you write down like three actual things that if? I did because I think your question was what, what how would we feel? What would be the most difficult uh, thing to my security if mm-hmm. I if I didn't have tomorrow to to live for, right? Or that something in your life would would end uh, tonight. And I'm beginning to feel like if I have a small idea of what right view is, in and then if. I snapped out of life, that would be a big blow. But if I had a slight view, off right view, and I wasn't able to think or evaluate or learn, that would be a big blow to my life too, to me too. Interesting. That's an interesting way to look at the question. And I think... um, what I what I would like you to do, not in not here in real time, but what I'd like you to do is instead of considering like your kind of makeup and what level of right view you have, et cetera, or how you know how um, the circumstances might be to give you more peace and ease, just think of three concrete things. Like if you lost your house, if you lost a friend if you lost you know and 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 see if there's a way to get closer to a real feeling of what that might be like and then look at the more theoretical aspect that you're talking about that sounds more a little more theoretical to me so i'm going to um check in with sarah and the Conover's there, Doug. Yeah, it's hi. hi. It's Doug who's raising his hand. Um, hello, thank you. Hello, um, good to see you. Yeah, I w- nice to see you. Um, I put down. I mean, the obvious ones for me. I, I, it three works out fine because I have Sarah here, and then to adult children. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty easy. What's staggering to me is how inexhaustible this list could be. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, I mean, I, I just started like writing and I, I could just keep going on and on. There's, um, and it, it, yeah. So anyways, I'm, I'm interested in Hearing more about right view because I know that it's impermanent, but there's so many things that would be devastating. Are there other persons, other people that would, or oh, there's probably other people. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering what that infinite list was. Oh, um, <laughs> um, just the health of the people that I'm close to and um, certain mm-hmm. friends. Um, sort of my. Uh, a big one is my faith in the Dharma. But anyways, that, that goes way beyond three. Mm-hmm. But there's 
there's some less, um, you know, there's some very tangible concrete ones that would just be a huge blow. But um, I also find um, the more I'm drawn to the Dharma, the more um, precious that feels like. Yes. So that's, that's another thing. Yes. Yeah, and I put the the Dhamma is in that different category, isn't it? Because that's where our right view is and all of the rest of mm-hmm. seeing things more clearly as they actually are. And it's not something we lose. Um, I mean, we can... We can forget certain things. We can forget a certain insight that we've had. And it's good to um, train the mind to remember um, those things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like, that's an interesting, different category. And there are some other things that go into that interesting, different category that actually carry on regardless of what gets lost in the sensoric world so it's good to talk about that yeah Yeah. and it it also the um being in the dharma is what makes um like you know i know that it's possible that the people that are closest to me and i love the most um could not be here later tonight you know um or tomorrow and it's and and it is the the dharma really that would allow me it feels like to survive that mm-hmm. yes hugely devastating that that's sort of another angle on but it, but isn't the, the dharma permanent in a way it you is. know isn't that the thing isn't that our ref yes <clears throat> Dharma is the way things are. So that doesn't change. Lifetime after lifetime, realm upon realm, um, Nibbana, it, the Dhamma is the Dhamma. I mean, it's very clear that that's how the Buddha sought and that's what he experienced and that's what he taught. And so that's where we put our, our trust is as we develop that trust, there's no pressure to you know pretend we have that trust we need to develop it through our experience but exactly that's that's what we can rely on and so that's in a different category because there's that um, security that's a real refuge and i can't take children you know um, if I think I, you know, sometimes people talk to me about whether or not they should have children. And one of the reasons they sometimes want to have children is because then when they get old, their children will take care of them. And I try and I tell them there's no guarantees. I know people with children who are getting older and their children never see them. They never come. There are people who outlive all their children. You know, it's like any kind of placing a refuge or safety or security on the things that really belong to the natural world, which is the world of the khandas, the world that falls apart. And it's a false 
sense of security. We put our, we put our trust in what actually doesn't end. Yeah. Thank you for your reflections, both of you. So Mariah, do you have something other than people on your list? There um, you go. It's, it's not stuff related. I actually been through that. I, I, so one thing that came up is I'd like to not, I really like to have a few months without another fire or another homelessness. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, oddly, I could do that. I, I had that as my list, and I thought, no, actually, I'm able to reach out now, mm -hmm. right? So, but really, what would be very hard is if Liam went psychotic and lost the Dhamma. I'm not talking about the 72 hours, right? He, was, he went psychotic in Thailand again. Within a day, he was back to talking with Lone Prabhupada, right? So right. if they lost the Dhamma, I can't give that to them. Right. right? I took them to the monastery and never had to say another word. Like, right. How could I be an example? Right? Yeah. So that so, that so is, is a good struggle, right? Like yeah. I have no control over that. That's right. And if I were to present, if I couldn't breathe through and feel okay, they know. If I'm not mm -hmm. feeling okay, and then they were, and get how to take care of mommy. So that's if I woke up and was so dysregulated that I lost the capacity to say meditate, chant some more dhamma has to be front and present to get through the next half hour, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the gift of the fire. I have to do that. Life is incredibly uncertain for me right now, and it's really beautiful. It's like your many precepts. But it's still a clinging. I'm clinging to the fact that they have devotion. Yeah. Okay, so thank you, Mariah, because this is an interesting one, that we want the people in our life to be safe. Mm -hmm. and we want them to have what's most meaningful from our perspective, in your case, which is the Dhamma, which I would very much agree is so, so important, so crucial. But... Those people in our life, none of them are ours. They're out of our control. Like you said, that's when we go crazy. We want to control things we can't control. Yeah. That's where we lose our minds. It's not just through, you know, like um, obvious, you know, lust overcoming the mind or greed of other kinds overcoming the mind or hatred overcoming the mind that causes people to lose their minds too but we lose our minds because we want to we want to change things that we can't change we want to control things we can't control and that comes from the distortion of thinking that we should be able to that yeah. there's you know some some power that i should have so this is a very interesting one. Thank you, Mariah. I want to, because you're doing this, I, I want to, it seems very relevant, so I'd like to ask this so that it can maybe come up as it comes up in these other discussions. There's the wisdom faculty that comes in all the time with this mm -hmm. investigation. Yes. Because we must make plans. We must try to, if I don't go get food, right, I won't have it for tomorrow. 
Mm -hmm. So the perceived survival versus the proliferation around survival. What can I control? That graspingness. I always think of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and everyone's whirling around. And my therapist once said, it's as though you're trying to take anchors, you know, from each of these things that are whirling around. Mm -hmm. So I think of this uncertainty in Nietzsche all the time and try to be leveling. Where's the wisdom? Where's my obligation? Where are my duties? Right? Where are my duties? And it's an interesting balance or dance no i don't think that's right when we're grounded in truth when we're grounded in dhamma then we can see how we need to operate on a practical level of planning and maintaining wealth and keeping it safe and maintaining relationships and helping give advice when it's appropriate or helping each other get through hard times or whatever it is you know, the Buddha was extremely practical. Yes. And he would give these teachings like, you know, this is how you this is how you operate in the world in order to increase your wealth and in order to keep you, your wealth safe from, you know, kings and ungrateful relatives and fire and all this stuff. And yet he's also teaching that, you know, all of anything that can be lost can be lost and anything that can be broken can be broken and anything that you know can die might die anytime etc so it really is both it's a it's the dhamma supports us in the natural living in the world in a in a sensible responsible way and it supports us in having the inner strength and clarity, wisdom, trust that allows us to be equanimous throughout whatever happens. And and this is part of what we're developing, all of us on the path. Thank you, Mariah. Deborah? Um, so mine, mine still has to do with people, well, to some extent, but I feel like I cling to Dhamma people and things now uh, quite a lot as, so for example, teachers, Kalyanamittas, as my my social circle expands more within the, the, the Buddhist realm, Mm-hmm. meditation what would happen like if something happened to me and i couldn't meditate mm-hmm. so i'm finding yeah i'm actually clinging a lot to mm-hmm. dhamma related things and it's mm-hmm. interesting last i think it was last year i was listening to ajahn bramali and mm-hmm. and he said something like oh wow what if, what, what will it be like when ajahn brahm dies he goes and you could tell that that was going to be something really hard for him mm-hmm. um, yeah. so yeah that's those are some things that I've been I feel like I I cling to quite a lot. Okay, thank you. These are good things to reflect on. Yeah, what if something happens to my body or my mind that I can't meditate? That's why the Buddha says over and over again, meditate now while you can meditate. Don't re- don't regret it later um, that you didn't those things. So those are those are important things to reflect on too. 
Thank you, Deborah. Xiao Xian, Xiao Jian. I don't tell me how you pronounce their name. Xiao mm. Jian. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to <coughs> give three things: um, health, mm -hmm. um, ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. My mother. Uh, yeah. Yes, these are all things. And and what's the value of thinking about these things and how they might be taken away? It gives us an opportunity to look at where do I find the, the grounding, the support. I mean, I... I have the opportunity to talk with people going through serious health issues frequently. And one of the things that's really interesting, or maybe any of these things, you know, that you mentioned, sometimes when things actually happen, there's a kind of spiritual resource that just arises in us as the result of our practice. You know, the reflection on these things that we cherish and depend upon and how they could uh, disappear and what we, and, and to be prepared in a certain sense for that. Again, like I said, not with being, not going into some kind of negativity or despair or, uh, or or depression, but from a from a place of understanding the Dhamma, that this is the way things are in this world, that we can also find the the spiritual resources that we are cultivating those every day, and that when things happen, sometimes we're really surprised to feel that equanimity, that patience, that groundedness arise in us. I think so often, I mean, I've had this happen to me a few different times. Once when my daughter was in a very bad car accident, once when my son got hit on a bicycle and was in the hospital, once when my granddaughter had a ruptured appendix. And, you know, it's like you're in this situation and i've seen other people at times when they're you know facing a terminal illness times when they lose a child you know there's there are these times when the practitioner comes up against this reality in a, such a real and personal way feels what they feel and has this upwelling of spiritual comfort that comes. Mm -hmm. So it's something I also want you to consider as a fruit of the practice. And the right view that can come out of looking at these three, three, these three possibilities and actually eventualities, because none of us ever knows like how things will unfold in our life or how, what will happen or when, but we do know we're going to die. 
We do know that the people we love will die at some point. Mm. Uh, yeah, so while listening to you, two things got off my list. But still one thing remaining is my ability to, to communicate, like to express. Mm -hmm. I think that would be still hard for me. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can still choose to die or live at that moment. That's the most, that's the thing I still cannot. So it's a good thing to think about. Like, what if your communication is all without the body? I mean, you know, our, our mind and our body really are separate. When we die, the body disintegrates and the mind continues unless we're enlightened and then it all goes still. But consider what it's like to communicate in a way beyond this um, physical ability to talk or to write. Or think about, you know, the Buddha really encouraged solitude. What is it like to be inside and know and not communicate. It's something to consider. Mm. So, so not communicate, do you mean I choose not to communicate or just what I meant was like, I may lose my mental capacity, physical capacity. I couldn't move, couldn't talk, but I'm not dead. And mm -hmm. But if you're still aware, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. But it, what I what I want what I want to encourage is not not just imagining every horrible thing that can happen to to us, <laughs> but to instead imagine like if my ability to communicate ended. And of course, for me as a teacher, this is so much a part of my practice. This is the one of one of the ways I'm able to help people to be generous. But what if that were gone? I have the feeling that there still might be a, the conditions might still allow some development in my own mind of the practice in a way that's actually, you know, spiritually beneficial for others. Now, just some, just some reflection, just considering, um, and considering the value that the Buddha put on um, developing the mind in that way and the practice in that way, that we we don't have to have as much actual communication through words and expressions. But that it goes beyond that. Just some thoughts. Okay, now we're going to look at some poems. Thank you for participating and really reflecting on this. Um, okay, so the first one, this is <clears throat> the monk named Uttara. And I have two translations side by side here. Um, Venerable Nyanadana, Nyanadananda, Nyanananda, sorry, and uh, Bhikkhu Sujato. So 
The Voice of Enlightened Monks uh, is a publication that I think you can find online if you're interested in it. Um, this is the author there on the left. And then uh, Bhante Sujato, Bhikkhu Sujato has his, um, <clears throat> his translations on suttacentral.net. And uh, if, if you've never gone to suttacentral.net, you'll see some of that in a minute online. So the verses of the Arahant Uttara. I'm going to read the one on the left first. No existence is permanent. No formation is everlasting. Again and again, your five aggregates of clinging will arise and cease repeatedly. I realized this danger. I don't need anything that belongs to existence. I am detached from all sensual pleasures. I've achieved enlightenment. So these are the verses of enlightened monastics. And it's through this reflection that enlightenment came to this monk. Realizing the danger of clinging to the five aggregates, body, feeling, perception, mental activity, and consciousness. And if we look at the translation on the right, it's the same Pali that it comes from, Pali language. No life is permanent, and no conditions last forever. The aggregates are reborn and pass away again and again. Knowing this danger, I have no need for another life. I've escaped all sensual pleasures and attained the ending of defilements. Which means enlightenment. Once you've let go of everything, not clinging to anything anymore, not a sense of self, not a desire to be reborn, it's the ending of all defilements. It's the ending of rounds of rebirth. So one of the reasons for showing you two translations is that sometimes a verse will really strike us as something we would like to reflect on over and over. No existence is permanent or no life is permanent. You know, right there, we can reflect on my life isn't permanent. My grandson's life isn't permanent. My daughter's life isn't permanent. My dearly beloved sister who I live with, his life isn't permanent. And how can I really see that, know that, know that any of us could pass away tonight? And then how would I hold that? Can I recognize that whether that beloved one goes on from here to another birth or goes on and, or just ends in the bliss of Nibbana, how can I be supportive of that continuation or going, going still? How can I 
have equanimity and acceptance and a sense of love and caring in the face of that? And, and how can I see the danger of clinging, the danger of the desire to be reborn, the danger of wanting to continue to experience sensuality and let that kind of percolate in the mind in a way that we turn more and more towards what's actually trustworthy, reliable, more and more towards the true escape, the true... um, the truth, the reality. Anybody want to say anything about this one? Okay, I think we'll go on to Ambapali. So this is a bhikkhuni, and her verses, I'm going to look at Bhante Sujato's translation here at suttacentral.net. And this is a long poem. It has 20 verses. And it's all about her body aging. Now, Amba Pali, according to the commentary, was born spontaneously under a mango tree in the royal garden. Now, we might accept that as a reality, or we might figure somebody abandoned a baby in the royal garden. And that baby was found by the gardener, and she was raised in the palace. She was extraordinarily beautiful and many princes wanted to marry her. And of course, getting married to a prince in those times meant you were part of a harem. It wasn't like you're just, as they say, the first wife, usually. And there was such a contention Contention, is that the right word? (laughs) For her um, hand, I guess you could say, that the court had to decide, and they decided that she would be a courtesan and she would belong to all of them, and she became a prostitute. No, courtesan. And she was so incredibly beautiful, and she was very wealthy, actually, and she became a follower of the Buddha. And she gave, she had a mango grove that she gave to the Buddha. We'll see that there are a number of suttas where they take place in in the Pali's mango grove. And then she became a bhikkhuni, and she became enlightened, which is the best part of the story. And when she became enlightened, and even before, according to the commentary, she spoke these verses 
and then again when she became enlightened. She said, my hair was as black as bees, graced with curly tips. Now old, it's become like hemp bark. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. And that's the refrain on every verse. And what the Buddha said is true. And I can confirm it by my own experience. And so for each of us as we age, no matter how old you are, you can see the changes in your body. We can also confirm it. By the way, I turned 70 yesterday. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah, the seventh decade is certainly different than the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and even the sixth. Crowned with flowers, my head was as fragrant as a perfume box, and now old, it smells like dog fur. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My hair was as thick as a well-planted forest. It shone, parted with brush and pins. Now old, it's patchy and sparse. The, world of the, the word of the truthful one is confirmed. With plates of black and ribbons of gold, it was so pretty, adorned with braids. Now old, my head's gone bald. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My eyebrows used to look so nice, like crescents painted by an artist. Now old, they droop with wrinkles. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My eyes shone brilliant as gems, wide and indigo. Ruined by age, they shine no more. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My nose was like a perfect peak, lovely in my bloom of youth. Now old, it's shriveled like a pepper. <laughs> the word of the truthful one is confirmed. My earlobes were so pretty, like lovely crafted bracelets. Now old, they droop with wrinkles. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My teeth used to be so pretty, bright as a jasmine flower. Now they're old, they're broken and yellow. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My singing was sweet as a cuckoo, wandering in the forest groves. Now old, it's patchy and croaking. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My neck used to be so pretty, like a polished shell conch. Now old, it's bowed and bent. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. By the way, my friend said last night, oh, I'm really seeing that your scoliosis is progressing. You're really <laughs> great. I know <laughs> it's happening. One of the things that helps is she's just delighted that I'm becoming old. I'm officially old now at 70, she tells me, and she's so delighted because she loves old people. I really recommend this attitude. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you, you um, shy away from seeing the aging happen, but we can enjoy it too. My arms used to be so pretty, like rounded crossbars. With age, they wrinkle and sag like a patella tree. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My hands used to be so pretty, adorned with lovely golden rings. Now old, they're like red radishes. <laughs> the word of the truthful one is confirmed. My breasts used to be so pretty, swelling round, close and high. Now they droop like water bags. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. My body used to be so pretty, like a polished slab of gold. Now it's covered with fine wrinkles. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. Both my thighs used to be so pretty, like an elephant's trunk. 
I don't know. I'm having a little trouble with that comparison. <laughs> now they're like bamboo. The word of the truthful one has been found. My calves used to be so pretty, adorned with cute golden anklets. Now old, they're like sesame sticks. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. Both my feet used to be so pretty, plump as if with cotton wool. Now old, they're cracked and wrinkly. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. This bag of bones once was such, but now it's withered, home to so much pain, like a house in decay with plaster crumbling. The word of the truthful one is confirmed. Any thoughts on how reflecting on this images or using similar images of our own body developing or our parents? One of the things that was helpful to me was watching my mother age and practicing with that. Those phrases from the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha talked about internal and external reflection on the body, reflecting on the internal, reflecting on my own body, reflecting on the external, reflecting on my mother's body. I also did this as she was dying. I was taking care of her. And her body and my body are so similar in size and shape. And just to know that my body was like her body, it will go through the same thing. You know, bring myself closer to the truth, to really feel it, not just think it, but feel it. When we feel it in our body, when we feel the truth, that's when we open up to insight, to really changing our clinging into caring and really the, more, the less we cling and the more we the less we cling the more we can care with compassion and without attachment the more we can love unconditionally yes i can yeah hi absolutely internet dropped as soon as my turn to speak came so well, i'm glad um, it came back <laughs> yeah um so i just wanted to share uh, i um i used to first feel that um kind of thinking about old age and such uh you know didn't didn't feel very exciting um but i think like I was just reflecting as we were going through this, um, you know, that uh, three things came to my mind. Uh, one was that, you know, I recently hit 40 and, you know, I was like, oh my God, I never thought I'll, I'll be one of the 40 year olds, you know, so here I am <laughs> being one of the 40 year olds. And um, I think just having, reading all of these kinds of things or, thinking of old age, for example, it's made it normal versus mm-hmm. otherwise I uh, would not feel great about it, maybe. Yeah. Um, also, I think kind of going through this is helpful in the sense of 
like um i think that uh in society everyone likes to dress up very nicely and all of that and um i think this kind of goes helps me um go beyond that surface appearance of society um like for example once uh, somebody i saw on youtube called makeup as face paint and uh, i thought oh <laughs> you know yeah maybe it is uh, you know so i mean kind of like you know br- bringing that thought that hey it's actually this old age and there's all of that that's behind um yeah and so yeah thank you so much for sharing this i really appreciated this uh, reading thank you yeah you're welcome thank you for your reflections i can it's it's really interesting how much our culture pushes us in the opposite direction in so many ways you know um there's so much covering up of death when when someone dies um, you know it's possible to kind of quickly whisk the body away and it's possible to just look at a photograph and some memories and not ever see the body i i just recently went back to indiana to to my cousin's funeral and they had the open casket um funeral you you have you can spend as much time enough in this you know period of time 3 hours of visitation and then the funeral on top of it you know with the body remembering what that was like when he was alive and what it's like to die what it what happens with the body and how the mind separates from that you know but but our culture wants to hide it we want to we want to hide it away we don't often don't talk about it very much you know what's that experience like when when you happen to be the one to find your loved one dead what happens to, what is that like and how can we how can this be you know understood as this normal thing whatever we're feeling however we're relating to it and then how do we support the mind in becoming clear about it and accepting of what is the truthful one has told us <laughs> and um and how you know aging there's so much effort and money that goes into trying to forestall it even even people trying to get frozen and reawakened when cures are available or whatever and it's this clinging to this world and to this life the buddha would say is madness you know there's no peace in it there's no security in it. and safety in it and yet when we really take in the dhamma in its entirety and and embody it and live it um we're secure in in every condition in every situation yes heidi yeah i was just um when you started reading i had a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling um and then towards the end and then also with your disc, your description of your mother um i was reminded of curiosity mm-hmm. because some of the things that like i kind of enjoy seeing my body change 
mm-hmm. um, and it kind of brought me and it, like not in that uncomfortable feeling of kind of more of acceptance so that the we could read the word of the truthful one is confirmed as kind of like a negative or a downer mm-hmm. but it can also be confirmed that there's like a, a joy to this or like a, a learning that's happening um, so like when you talked about your mother I was kind of like wow, that that'd be really difficult. Like, I don't want to be stuck like that. Like not your example, but like with my mother, you know, like mm-hmm. to reflect on that and be like, oh, I can also see it as like, I'm learning things through accompanying different people who are dying. And I don't want to repeat that. Or we're learning that it's okay to die. It's mm-hmm. okay to die. And it's okay to die in whatever way we die. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes people have a very idealized kind of perception or vision of how they want to die and it doesn't work that way. But I think, you know, I tell people, you know, just expect it to be different than you think. I also tell people that when they want to ordain, <laughs> that's monastic, expect it to be different than you think because it won't be <laughs> the idealistic um, thing. And, it's okay. It's okay because the body is belongs to nature and it does its own thing. It's going to take whatever time it needs to take and it's going to go in whatever way it goes. And we can't control it. Then we really understand it's not ours. It was just on loan. And this is important for us to know because when we know this body is just on loan, then... Okay, we want to take care of it and make use of it to do good and to develop good qualities because that comes with us when we die. All those qualities and, you know, whether good or bad, what we're cultivating, that continues on with us when we die. And, and it's, it's like if we can see that difference and the passage where the Buddha talks to this very old man who's, come to see the Buddha and the Buddha's known him most of his life. And the man talks about like, I'm really old now. And I am like, just basically uh, falling apart. There's all this pain and illness and deterioration. And the Buddha said, well, just make sure that when the body suffers, the mind doesn't suffer. The body's sick, that the mind isn't sick. It's beautiful. And it's it's really the truth. This is really what's available to all of us. We don't have to be sick mentally. We don't have to be um, diseased mentally when the body's diseased because we don't have to be connected in that way that we think we're just, that's who we are, that's ours, that's but that's not true. And, and it's these reflections of, look at this thing taking on whatever its own, its own path, you know, whether it's the scoliosis or the osteoporosis or the, you know, whatever osis. <laughs> and that's just its normal, normal path. And something is going to free us from this body. We can think of it that way. You know, when my mom was dying, I lived with her for the last three months. 
to take care of her. And she died at, at home. And, you know, I really, at, at the end, she didn't eat or drink for the longest time, longer than anyone thinks is possible to stay alive. But the body has its own timing. And I felt very much like we were just, she and I, waiting for the miracle. And it really felt like that. The miracle, you know, we we can easily acknowledge that there's a miracle when when a child is born. The consciousness enters this body that gets created by two parents. And it's a miracle. But when we die, it's also a miracle. Consciousness leaves this body that's become completely incapable of continuing. And it goes on with its karma. And it can go on to what's even more beautiful because of the beautiful qualities we we cultivate. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that we're not inhibited by the body anymore. At that time of death, all the pain from the body is gone completely in a minute, in a nanosecond. The body dies and we're free of it. It's amazing. The Buddha didn't want us to be afraid of death or afraid of aging afraid of loss of whatever it is that was never ours anyway this is what awaits us all as we practice Deborah Um, I found that letting go of caring about the visible aging has been like the most freeing, <laughs> liberating thing ever. I had a surgery about a decade ago and something happened after the surgery where suddenly I was like, I'm done. I'm not counting calories. I, you know, I'm not doing Botox, nothing. I'm, I'm, this, I'm just aging naturally. Obviously I'm not going to, you know, take care of my health to the extent I can, but, um, <clears throat> and then during COVID, my mom stopped dyeing her hair and she looked great. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done with that too. Um, it is so freeing right here in this lifetime. Yes. Um, I wish it for everybody <laughs> to yes. just be happy with the visible appearance um, of aging. Yeah. Thank you, Deborah. Yeah, I mean, there are times when I find myself worried about the body, like particularly during the pandemic, when the pandemic happened, you know, and you start to become so careful not to be around other people and all of that. And and then I would feel fear that I might catch it. And that's a really good indication. It's like, oh, okay, I'm clinging to something here that's creating this discomfort. And instead of being like, oh, you know, I've been a nun for 18 years. I shouldn't feel like this, <laughs> you know, to just be, be with it and appreciate that this is quite natural. We are, we are here in these bodies. You know, this is what we, we think um, is us. And how can we let go of that or at least loosen the, the certainty around it and start to recognize that, it's not really the way it is. And we don't, 
you know, like we, we don't want to shove away whatever we're feeling because that doesn't work. We want to, we want to hold it, observe it, be present with it, but not own it. Just watch it go through its natural unfolding, whatever those emotions are. Not feed them with something from wrong view. Feed them with right view. Yeah, I might get sick. Well, I will get sick. I have gotten sick. <laughs> and you get better or you don't. Uh, Ajahn Brahm, I don't know if you all know him, but he's a wonderful monk who tells the story of being uh, living with Ajahn Chah in the forest and coming down with this horrible scrub typhus, which is very deadly and he gets put in the hospital. The hospitals in rural Thailand weren't the greatest at the time many, many years ago. And and um, he, said, he said that, you know, he was like, where's the nurse? Oh, it's after five or after seven or whatever it was. There's no nurse. There's no nurse till morning. What? You know, like, yeah, that's just how it was. And and then Ajahn Chah, he heard Ajahn Chah was going to come to see him in the hospital. And he thought, oh, good, the great master is going to come see me. And I need his, his encouragement. And, and he said what Ajahn Chah said to him was, well, you're either going to get better or not. And you have to be comfortable with both. And he said that was greatest teaching. And it made a huge difference to his wisdom development. So that might feel like it's a little rough, but when you sign up to be a monk or a nun, uh, you're kind of asking for it. <laughs> and when you sign up to be a practitioner and um, really take on what the Buddha taught, then you're kind of asking for it. And it's good when it comes. Let's see another sutta. I don't know. Can you still see the? No, I got to share again. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So we're going to go back to here. These are the verses of Isidina Bhikkhu. He says, I've seen some lay followers who are experts in the Dhamma. And they say, sensual pleasures are impermanent. But they cling to jewelry, partners, and children. And they wish for them again and again. Truly, these lay followers don't know the Dhamma as it really is. Even though they say sensual pleasures are impermanent, they have no power to cut off their desire. Because of that, they cling to children, partners, and wealth. So this is just a... Sometimes I think, you know, these verses were spoken 2,500 plus years ago. And the human condition is still about the same. We're still doing the same things. And of course, it's, it's through our desire to awaken that we want to take a look at, am I clinging? How? Why? 
can I see the truth about this and let go of that attachment? And the part that, that that part can sound so negative, but the part that's embedded in that letting go is what I mentioned before, where what we, what comes is a development of a much greater kind of love, unconditional. When you let go of the clinging, you're so much more available to those children and partners. <laughs> you can use the wealth so much more, more um, beneficially for others in a practical sense, but it's the letting go that's the freedom that, that opens the way for something much more profound and beautiful to develop. And then I have one last one to share with you that's quite short. We're going to jump over here to this other screen. This is Sivaka, the enlightened monk Sivaka. It's a lovely two-verse poem. Houses are impermanent. On and on, life after life. I've been searching for the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. I've seen you, house builder. You won't build a house again. Your rafters are all broken. Your ridge pole is shattered. My mind is released from limits. In this very life, it will dissipate. I don't know if you'll ever, if you can find it or not, but there's a beautiful song by Reverend Hangshur, if you've ever heard of him, Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. He's, um, he was a folk singer and songwriter before he became a monk, and he's been a monk now, like, I don't know, 50 years or something. But he occasionally writes Buddhist songs, and he wrote one about the house builder. It's really quite lovely. Um, maybe this week I can find it and play it for you. Um, but this this idea that, you know, we can find the root of our desire for becoming something and let go. Many of you have a last comment. I think we end in a few minutes, but you're welcome to add something if you like. Mariah? I just wanted to ask if it would be possible to get um, the screen, you know, the, the documents maybe shared over Drive. That's a great idea, Mariah. I was happy. It would be nice to um, just to be able to glance, like the last poem, full stop, was lovely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Full stop. 
Um, so that, that kind of thing, um, I would love to just be able to, uh, look at the poem or even, cause it will rekindle the affection of this meeting. Mm-hmm. And that's very, that's a, sometimes that's how I move through the days. I will, after your birthday, I kind of remembered some of those videos and they were so uplifting and just the images and seeing everyone smile and twinkle just to be able to say happy birthday was, you know, so that kind of thing can bring um, a lightness of heart. And I think that these contemplations for me, I must also temper them with this lightness of heart Yes. Mm, that is, those irises are beautiful behind you. They are. <laughs> <laughs> and they see, are. that they're beautiful dried, too. Yes. And I, I think it sometimes gets a little dour with the, I'm not, I'm not bothered by blood and guts. That never bothered me. Somehow I missed that memo on the, the smell and the ugliness. But I love beauty. And my kids tease me. I really respond to beauty and light. The 102-year-old gal, we met over fashion. She Everything matched when she was, she's a black church lady, and her hat was the same color as the stripe and her little thing and her shoes, and she still walked everywhere at 100. And, but she had, it wasn't, she wasn't clinging to it. Yes. She was delighting exactly. me. And, yep. and after the fire, I washed every stitch of clothing. I'm like, nope, I'm not losing it like that. I'll stop playing dress up maybe when I'm 70. Until then, I'm wearing all my Mary Poppins stuff to work. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I'd like to reflect to just uplift the heart. And I think beauty, the beauty of the breath uplifts the heart. Like sometimes you can just feel the breath while you look at a poem and know it's going to be different the next moment. But sometimes a moment of breath is really nice. Thank you, Mariah. Yes, I will um, see if I imagine that um, Rob and I can work something out around creating a space on Drive and send a link for the materials uh, as they as they come available each week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, I hope you found this session useful and look forward to seeing you next time. Um, and I really wish you well. I'm hoping that during this week, you'll have an opportunity to reflect on impermanence. And you can really see it everywhere around you. This whole world is, is full of things that are falling apart. And I think seeing the beauty in it too is really really valuable and the humor and the love. All right. Take care, everyone.